It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Today on Cut to the Chase, I have a guest by the name of Lane Filler. He is an editorial writer on the editorial board, and he writes op-eds for Newsday, which is Long Island's hometown newspaper. He's been there for 12 years, but he's been in journalism for a lot longer than that. Lane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today, Laura. I'm excited, and I can't wait to see what we're going to talk about, because I'm willing to talk to you about anything. I know. That's what's so fun (laughs) about talking to you, is you never quite know where it's going to go. So we have a topic that we've picked that I think we both have a lot to talk about, and that is money in politics. Mm-hmm. The effect, how it's done, the laws, Citizens United, there's so much to talk about, especially in this political season. And I know you're joining me on the phone. You were going to come into the studio, but you have a little bit of COVID running through the household. So I hope you're feeling okay. I'm doing well enough to do this. This is perking me up. So are we going to start big, big picture with money in politics, or are we going to start micro, tiny, small? Well, I was thinking, since you are an opiner, and sometimes Mm -hmm. I I tease you for being in the ivory tower, and I have been one who's actually had to raise the money, and I have some certain theories about it myself, a lot of ambivalence Mm -hmm. about it. How do you want to start this? I want to know how much money you raised to secure that first crucial election win in the Baldwin School District. I had a fundraiser and I raised $700 for lawn signs. How much did you spend? I think I spent $700 for lawn signs. And I had a friend <laughs> whose husband did the website, so that was free. Yeah, $700. So you're just taking favors now in exchange <laughs> for it. That's just it, grand. It was favors. Yeah. But then fast you think forward. You to spend the money? I probably could. Okay, so this was the thing. I probably could have given myself the money and bought the things myself. But my Mm -hmm. friend said, you know, when you have a little fundraiser and you have people invest in you, it makes them more interested in the outcome. It makes them more motivated to vote. It makes them more willing to talk about it. And when they make that personal investment, they care more, which can actually help you win, which I thought was a very good point. And I think you can extrapolate that for the larger world. Although the interests, I, I, the interests that are funneling money into campaigns may be a little more self-serving than they are in a, something like a school board race. They can be, but that lead, that's also true at a larger level. A lot of times the reason people pay $1,000 to go to these events or to get into the photo line is that they really want to go to the event and they really want to be in the photo line. They're not buying influence. They're going to a party. And right. often there are people that are not shocked to spend $1,000 on a night out. So what difference does it make? Right, exactly. And then they can say, well, I was with the senator last night and he said, you know, like they're in the Mm -hmm. inner circle. Yeah, but but they may love it. Like they may be policy wonks or they may consider these people to be celebrities or they may just, you know, have a strange, strange addiction to the Crest Hollow, which so many people (laughs) we know do have that addiction. If you live on Long Island and you have anything to do with politics, you go to the Crest Hollow at least once a week. (laughs) Even if there's no event planned, you just stop by and honk. Yeah, right. So, but that's so we started this super small, and I was kind of joking, but not because, right, that's the kind of, of community politics where maybe the money isn't so important, but you spend a little, you raise a little. But, you know, so then the next step for you mm-hmm. was 
county legislature mm-hmm. and then it, in a county the size of Nassau, which you know, would be the 35th or 36th largest state, it starts to get a little serious, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so I like how you're, you're interviewing me. I like how you're, how you're making this happen. That's good. <laughs> well, I'm a journalist, Laura. I don't have any answers. All I got is questions. Uh, that's great. Well, so I'll take the bait. So running for legislator, I had to raise money in a serious way. And that was my introduction to the windowless room, the list of people, the persons sitting across from me, goading me on. And because I was a newcomer to all of this, I basically went through my phone and called everyone that I knew, friends, husbands, friends, family, old kindergarten friends, I don't have any, you know, fifth grade friends, whatever it is. And the surprising thing is that people would say, sure, I'll give you some money. I'd be like, really? You will? Wow, thanks. (laughs) What percentage of the people who said they would did? For that race, I would say... I would say pretty much everyone. Really? Running for county exec was a little different. Maybe it was like 80%, 75%. Because mm-hmm. people have a hard time saying no when it's you on the phone asking. It's hard right. to say no. Or there are always excuses like, well, let me talk to my wife, or I have to see if my job will let me, or you know, I just have to see where everything is going. You know, There's a lot of ways that you can put off the candidate. And it's funny because right. now that I'm not running, I'm getting calls from people. And it makes me so grateful that I don't have to be raising money right now. Yeah, but a little less grateful that you have to give it to everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't mind. How much, how much does one raise for a uh, county-led race back in county 2010 led, with your first go, or 29? It, or, it was 13, 2013. 13? Okay. Yeah, so I ran in 13 and 15. So, like, I think about 30,000, 40,000, something like that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And how much call time was that? It wasn't crazy. It was maybe once a week for several hours. County exec is a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, see, I think the reason I'm asking you questions is I think you have more interesting things to say about this part of the conversation. So, what kind of call time daily were you doing for county exec? For county exec, it was pretty serious. And the thing is, after I won in 2017, I took maybe six months off, which was amazing and wonderful. I would check in with, you know, some of the donors, you know, people that you talk to on the phone and who you do develop friendships and relationships. So sometimes you just want to call them to let them know how you're doing or you have a question or, you know, the, the Ed Koch thing, how am I doing kind of thing. Right. And we can all talk about it's called call time for those in the know when you have to call donors. It's horrible and you hate it and you dread it and you can't wait till it's over. And I did the most amazing and bizarre doodles as I was doing that. But there are some positives. And that is when you call people and you ask them for money, they're not looking to kiss your ass. So they're not going to be nice or say what they think you want to hear. They're going to tell you exactly what they think, what's working, what's not. So that's helpful. And that's helpful in a campaign because, you you know, you kind of learn to bob and weave. You learn to pivot. You learn what works out there. You know, you can sort of – it's like a comedian trying out your shtick. You can try it out on these donors. And the, right. and the other thing is I think it, it helps you – like Bloomberg. I think about Michael Bloomberg. Everyone thought he was going to be the savior of the world when he ran for president in 2020. And speaking of fundraising, he didn't have to fundraise. He gave himself a billion dollars. For mayor, he didn't have to fundraise. So he never had to, he was always the boss. Yes, Mr. Mm. Mayor, or yes, CEO, founder of Bloomberg, yes, sir. He's always right. Clearly, he's brilliant. But he didn't have to do that dance, that bobbing and weaving, that defending himself. So when Elizabeth Warren went after him, he just crumbled. And I think that's a big part because 
He was the man. He didn't have to be challenged. And then when he was challenged, he couldn't handle it. So that's one good aspect of having to dial for dollars. So let me ask you a question about that byplay. Since you went, you ran for Nassau County Executive twice in mm-hmm. 2017 and 2021 mm-hmm. with disparate results. Yeah. When you were doing call time in September and October of 2021, did you start to feel or think, I'm a little surprised that people who had been so loyal sound so so aggravated or dissatisfied, not necessarily with you, mm. but with Democrats in general or with bail reform or with the status quo. Did, did you get a different tone in your ear at the end of the 2021? I did. That last month or so, I did have a few people say to me, you know, I think you're great, but you're a party, blah, 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 whatever it was. Mm. And some people would be like, this is going to sound really self-serving, but so many people said to me, why don't you run for higher office? You need to run for higher office. Do something else. You know, if you're going to run for this or that, I will support you 100 percent because we, you know, this is a democratic state. We need Democrats like you. So I did get a lot of that. But the atmosphere did start to change in a way, actually, that it's feel like it's starting to change now in this governor's race, which is interesting to watch. It really is. I just got off of an editorial board meeting because we do them at 10 every day. And we talked about a huge variety of stuff. But one of the things that went through my mind and I said was, it's extraordinary to me, regardless of your political leanings, that this might be a time in your life when you're considering not voting. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you're a communist or a John Bircher or anywhere in between. It's just it's hard for me to relate to the idea that in November of this year, you would say, no, stay at home. Yeah. Yes, I'm hearing the same thing. And I'm a big fan of voting. I vote for everything. I'm a big fan of me voting. When they always want to write those editorials and columns that say everyone should have to vote or it should be like Australia, there should be a law where you have to vote, this and that. I'm like, no, I want to be the only one who votes. I don't want anyone (laughs) else to vote but me. But since that's not the case, I support voter turnout. But, you know, it's funny to think when you're in a grocery store, when you're in a Costco, when you're in a football stadium or whatever, those are the people that are voting with you. Mm-hmm. And some of them you're awful glad and some of them you're not. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of money being spent to convince them to vote, to come out and to do it one way or the other. But we digress. There's a lot of money being spent and there are a lot of consultants getting paid. And we talked about the consultant world a little bit on my last podcast But it is a beast that needs to be fed. Mm -hmm. Pollsters, strategists, mail, and of course the big money gobbler, TV, TV ads. Right. That's Um, where all the money goes. That's where all the money goes. And the people who are arranging that money generally keep 20% of the advertising budget for themselves. Mm -hmm. That's how these people make a living. And think about the amount of money. If you want to go to the big races, we know that president is a billion-dollar race now, right? Yes, uh, and you that's think, right. Think about that money being spent. To, how did Steve Israel used to describe it? Seven percent of the people in seven states. Wow. It's not being spent to convince anybody in New York City of anything. Doesn't matter. Not in L.A., not in South Carolina. Not, it's literally, it's a billion or two billion or however many billion dollars it is, but it's being focused. It's such a small group of people. It starts to feel like it'd be easier to offer them 10 grand to vote for you. The donor class, Yeah. Which, by the way, is not legal, and I do not advocate. Thank you. Yeah. But money seems to work. In the 2020 elections, 80, and this is in the Senate elections, 80, almost 88% of Senate wins were won by the top spending candidate. Now, did the money make them win, or do people want to donate 
to the person they think is going to win? Do the special interests want to do that? And we're seeing that Zeldin, he, you know, a lot of people were writing him off. Now his fundraising is picking up because, hey, this guy could win and I want to be I want to have a seat at the table. Well, we could look at that in our own state and we can evaluate how you could misevaluate the money in our senatorial campaign. OK, so we have Schumer running against Joe Pinion mm-hmm. and Schumer's going to raise six gazillion dollars and Joe Pinion is going to raise 40,000. And at that point, you could come back and write a knowledgeable article from Chicago, you know, wherever you're based in Chicago, wherever, and say, well, Schumer won because he raised the most money. But of course, he raised the most money because he's going to win. Right. And I think that is hard to separate. And you also have races where it hasn't, I think it often isn't the deciding factor. You know, you go back to Trump, who did not spend all that much money in 2016, but had so much free media. And then you get into, we also now, I think the dark money is so hard to keep up with. And, you know, that goes to Citizens United. That's at the very root of what free speech is. Right. So you want to give a little praises on what the Citizen United case meant? So, sure. And I have to always, I can only give the praises by trying to explain how I think people misunderstand it. Okay. In 2010, a ruling came down from the Supreme Court of the United States that said essentially corporations could not be stopped from spending money on political speech. And it has caused tremendous havoc since. What the root of it was, was there was a 2002 law that said nonprofits and unions and corporations couldn't spend money to support a particular candidate ever mm-hmm. and couldn't spend money on general electioneering within either 30 or 60 days of an election, depending on how you looked at it. Right. It was so, 60 days of the general, very, 30 days of the primary yeah. and 60 days of the general. Right. So you can have a big argument about whether corporations are people and this or that. But what you have to go back to and look at was the actual case. What Citizens United wanted to do was distribute a movie about Hillary Clinton. Right. They were a conservative nonprofit. That's what Citizens United was. Right. And they took corporate money to fund their activities. They still do. They're still in existence. Mm. And they were extremely anti-Hillary Clinton. Mm. And this, although the decision didn't come down until 2010, this was in reference to the 2008 election. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to create and distribute, using that corporate contribution money, a movie about Hillary Clinton. So let's get away for a second from the argument about whether corporations are people, which I don't even know what that means, and say, how, in our understanding of the First Amendment, can any group or group of groups or individual or group of individuals be stopped from making and distributing a movie in the United States? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I never thought of it that way. And if we decided there was a way to stop corporations from doing that, what would it mean about Paramount's ability to make a political movie like Bullworth? Mm. What would it mean for a corporation like the New York Times that gives billions in political speech every year simply by supporting things on its editorial page? Mm-hmm. Hmm. What would Newsday as a for-profit corporation actually? So how do you write the law? that actually decides who doesn't get to express their feelings. That is very interesting. So you're saying you would agree with this decision? I would agree with this decision, and I would be fascinated to try to find a way to write laws that actually allow political speech to be what we want it to be. 
but you can't, particularly in the modern social media era, it's very hard to make the distinction of saying, well, the New York Times or Newsday can do it because they're media, but Ford or General Motors can't contribute money to this kind of political speech because they're not. Right. Because I'll tell you right now, Ford and General Motors Twitter accounts probably have five million followers. Mm. That is media. Mm. And they're allowed to say whatever they want. Or are they? I think what we're really seeing is that we're always super conscious of the ways some people would say, for instance, the Second Amendment doesn't reflect the modern nation right. in the way it reflected 1793. And other people would say that's true about the Electoral College or about senatorial apportionment or stuff like that. I think we're getting to the point where the First Amendment, and I'm a First Amendment absolutist as written, mm-hmm. but maybe it doesn't quite describe the reality in the country we live in. Mm-hmm. So that's airy-fairy. And it makes a lot of sense way. because, you know, I, I have these conversations a lot about things like the First, the Second Amendment and other things. Like It was a very different country and the intention was very different. So how do we apply that with this framework that I think is excellent, but to this world that has changed so much? Now, I want to go back to something Ooh. you said in a minute, a minute ago about dark money. Now, dark okay. money, people sort of conflate that with super PACs, these independent expenditures. Is that the same thing for you? Yeah. For me, dark money is money where there aren't really limits on it. The candidate can't necessarily be tied to what's done with it, and it doesn't actually have to be written on an FEC or state election form. But everything we give to Lee Zeldin and Hochul's campaign or Laura Curran's campaign we have to say that we gave it, and this is our address, and this is where we live, and this mm-hmm. is where we are. You know, whatever the things you have to say. But you can you can give a billion dollars to the you know if you want to form the association to make sure that Lane and Laura have the most popular podcast in history, <laughs> and then are elected president and vice president of these United States. There are no limits on that, and you don't even have to admit that it's you doing it. Right. And for, for just for, for so people know, PAC, you know, everyone talks about PACs and super PACs, political action committees, they're independent expenditure only. And so they work not in concert with, in collaboration with or in communication with, allegedly, any campaign wink, wink, or nod, party. Nod. Yeah. But we know that's not necessarily the case. Oh, it's it's not only is it not necessarily the case, it's almost impossible for it to be the case. Often the people running the campaign and the people running the super PAC have been spending all their time together for years. And you know, then, they're best friends. Yeah. As you said, they exist in this atmosphere. I mean, listen, New York's a big state. Long Island's a big place. But the 50 political people that actually matter are in constant contact. Mm-hmm. It's so true. The chattering right. class. Well, you know, if I'm a regular Joe Blow giving money, you're right. I have to say where I live, where I work, blah, blah, blah. But if I'm giving to a super PAC or even a PAC PAC, I don't have to say anything. I can just give the money and no one knows where it's from. Did Citizens United open the door for these super PACs? Was that an unintended consequence or an intended consequence? Or I don't know. Well, I think it was actually one of those cases where the Supreme Court kind of did what it was supposed to do, which is, well, what some people think they're supposed to do, which is that they were blind to outcomes. They looked at the Constitution and said, well, there's no way we can restrict this. This is absolutely a free speech issue. And they were blind to outcomes and said, if you want to change the law, change the law. If you want to change the Constitution, change the Constitution. Mm. And what we got is this extraordinary arms race. It's true. But did it make things notably worse? Yeah. You know, all right. Yeah. 
I think it probably did make things notably worse. I want to know who's saying it when people say things. I want to know who's giving the money. Because also, you know, you and I are old enough to remember where when you lied in politics, you actually got in trouble and it destroyed your career. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to be able to go back to, you know, when people swift vote John Kerry and say, well, this is you. This is your name. You paid for this message. It's entirely untrue. Hang your head in shame, sir. Mm. <laughs> We've gotten into the big airy fairy stuff, but I've had some interesting conversations this morning mm-hmm. about how money is affecting the current race in the state of New York. So what, and, are, what are you thinking about that? Well, I know that the state, the Senate Democratic campaign, which is, is Mike Gennaris and those folks who yeah. decide where the money is going to go to try to carry seats in this election, yeah. have walked away from John Brooks. Wow. Um, and... Why? That would have been a spend of five hundred. Well, it would have been a spend of five hundred or seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And just so people know, John Brooks is a Long Island Democrat, very independent-minded in the state Senate. Right. So very know. brainy, very cerebral, mm-hmm. somewhat of a pain in the ass, to mm-hmm. be honest. But in like, a good I wouldn't way. Necessarily want to be his caucus leader. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good <laughs> to be his constituent. You nuts about the price of a fire hydrant or. There's some minutia, but he also has some really, really, by the way, some really big ideas about reforming education spending. Yes. Actually has the right answer on that problem. So why are they walking away from him? Do they not care about Long Island? Do they not care about moderates? I have heard a bunch of explanations for that. One is uh, John has a new district. He's been redistricted. Yeah. There are some people that say the poll numbers don't look great and it would be a waste of money. What this money is, it's 500 or 750,000. And it really takes care of your television mm. for these races, and it takes care of your mailers. So, so they it, have to prioritize. They have to prioritize where they feel they have a competitive race. Sure, but this is a guy who's been in the Senate for years, mm-hmm. who has, I think, a very strong reputation on the island, and so people start asking other questions. Which is, if we go back to when the Democrats took the Senate back in 2018, mm-hmm. a lot of voices including some Democratic voices and including Newsday at times, were saying, listen, if the Democrats run the entire state, that means New York City runs the entire state because they are the majority of the Assembly and Senate caucuses. Well, I think there's some I think there's some truth to that. Right. So they were not upset that Jim Gorin retired at all. He was Mm. a thorn in their side. Mm. I do not think they're upset that Todd Kaminsky is gone. He was Mm -hmm. a thorn in their side, always whining about Long Island. Mm -hmm. I don't think they have particularly any love for John Brooks, who's, while he has the right plan on on funding schools, which is to make sure that no district funds more than 50% of their annual budget with residential property taxes, it's a way of bailing out districts that don't have enough commercial property. Yeah. But it'd basically be about $1.4 billion to these districts, and a lot of it would come from the city. And the city has no involvement in these kinds of property tax struggles. So maybe they think they can't win it. Maybe they think they don't need it. Maybe they think the money would be better somewhere else. Or maybe they think, what do we need John Brooks in our air for? I just as soon have a Republican. Because in the current status quo, the interesting thing about being a Democratic leader in the state of New York Mm. is that Republicans can't screw with you. Democrats can. Exactly. And Long Island, you know, which we, as we know, is much more purple than blue, they have to advocate for what their constituents want. And that gets in the way of the overall state democratic agenda. And they don't want to be bothered with it. And they don't seem to ha- just, they don't seem to want to protect their own if they're not totally in lockstep with what it is that they want. 
That's the sense you I get. You said that Long Island was purple. And as you said it, I thought we should come up with a new term for purple that really explains how regions like this are. Yeah. Moody. Mm, like a mood ring. Moody. They change. Well, that's what purple states are. They're moody. They're fickle. They're like, it's just how they feel today. Yeah, exactly. The price <laughs> of gas went up. I'm pissed off. I'm going to vote a different way. Or I'm just going to well, stay home. How the city caucuses look at Long Island. I look at Long Island, having moved there in 2010, as this odd little synecdoche of the United States, that everything we have in the country, we also have in Long Island, yeah. from rural to urban to suburban to black to white. To yeah, and, and, the, and, and the same percentages, you know, that's the other thing. The demographics right. yeah, really the mirror city, the country. The city Democrats look at Long Island as a, a, a wealthy place, mm. a pastoral place, a totally in many ways, white a racist place. place, yeah, a totally white place. And this, you know, even though, in fact, Trump lost there in 2020, he won there in 2016. So I think they consider both the concerns of Long Island invalid and and in some sense, like actively negative. What the city caucuses really want is for the entire state to be run by the city. And they get close to it, right? They have almost half the voters, but bad turnout. You'd think we would never have another Republican governor again. You'd think we'd never have another Republican Senate again. But they never quite get there. Hmm. I want to come to the idea of campaign finance reform. And this is something that's happened in the city. It's Suffolk is sort of all over the place with it. Right. But this whole thing about small, smaller donations and smaller limits matched by taxpayers – and it sounds great because there's not as much, you know, individual people or businesses don't have as much influence, super PACs aside, because the donations are so small. But the problem with that is because the donations are so small, candidates end up spending way more time on the phone because every little bit, they need every little bit they can to scrape in all these pennies to get some money. And there's a lot of nitpicky laws around this, and it's really easy to make a mistake and get in trouble. So in some ways, the fix brings its own raft of problems. I think there's a lot of positives and negatives to it. I think one of the positives is if you're a young guy with an interesting point of view and a lot of energy, maybe you can raise 10000 and leverage it into 60000 and get your voice out there. Mm. It's not going to stop the incumbent from raising 500000 or a million against you and maybe not taking the match. You also, you know, we've seen this in New York City and people went to jail for it. That six-to-one match can be awfully tantalizing for somebody who, who lives in the political atmosphere. And what they really want to do is make sure they have enough money to take everyone out to dinner and on trips mm. and driving rental cars and stuff. So you know, in the city, if you can raise $100,000 for a fake mayoral campaign, they'll give you 600000 to spend if you're doing well enough. And that's a lot of money to drop at Rouse. Mm. And that's a lot of money to drop on your political consultant friends. So there's some cynicism there. and then, as I said, it won't stop the big guys from raising as, as much money as they want to. But I can't think of an area in politics more where you're looking for the least bad solution. Right. I'll, I'll say this, too. If you want to look at Suffolk County, they legalized campaign finance reform. They decided to do it in an election. The Democrats were running Suffolk County at the time. And Put aside for a minute the rules about campaign finance reform or even whether it would help. When they got rid of it, the way that the Republicans led by Kevin McCaffrey got rid of it this year, 
is they came in and told the people of Suffolk County, if we didn't spend this dinky $1.4 million on a campaign finance reform experiment, we would have enough money to put shot spotter back up in all your communities so Which nobody would very, die. very, very savvy. Incredibly cynical. Yeah. They and have it's... money coming out of their ears from COVID money from the federal government. And with and, a $3.5 billion dollar budget or whatever it is. Right. And so it was incredibly disingenuous. And it was the same old, if you don't do what we say, grandma will die politics. And that makes me more in favor of campaign finance reform, because if the people who want to do politics that way are that afraid of it, let's give it a try. And it would certainly give a lot of work for the lawyers. So it's a good jobs program, too, on top of it. <laughs> yeah, the endless suing. And yeah, so, so campaign money going to consultants and lawyers. You know what, Lane? I can't believe it, but we're done. It's already a wow. half hour. I know. Every time I do a podcast, it feels like it's shorter and shorter. So, but this um, one felt the shortest, right? It did. I thought last week was the shortest, <laughs> but this was even shorter, and I feel like we barely touched the tip of the iceberg. So when you're all better, I want you to come back, and we'll find some other meaty topic to get into. And in the meantime, dear listener, thank you so much for listening and making this podcast widely known. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Lane, I just have one more thing to say. When I first came across your name, I couldn't help thinking of line filler and a reporter is someone who just fills up lines. So thank you for doing what and you do. And it turned out to be true. And it turned out to be true. Thanks so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun and I hope that you feel better. You sound good. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it and I can't wait to do it again. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye.